You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rob. I'm one of the elders here on staff. And man, I'm just so glad you chose to gather with us here on this Sunday morning. We, we get to hear the word, sing the word, pray the word, receive the word, and later we'll send you out with the word. But right now, I want to invite you to hear the word of God. We're going to be continuing our series uh, in Paul's letter uh, to the church in Ephesus. We are in chapter 4. We're halfway through this beast. And so let's dive in right here. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, if you have your Bibles with you. Have them open the whole time so you can make sure what, what I'm saying is what Paul is saying. Paul continues his letter by saying, I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's thank him through prayer. Father, we thank you that you are indeed one. You're one with the Son and one with the Spirit. We thank you that all unity does not have to start with us, but it starts with you. And so, Father, as I preach right now, we pray that the fountain of your grace, which is your essence, which is your divine nature, would be poured out on us here this morning. That you would give me divine wisdom as I preach here today as one fallen man amongst my many fallen brothers and sisters in Christ. Show us our need for Jesus and show us how he supplies our every need. It's in his name we pray by the power of your spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You could be seated. Well, like I said, we're, we're now halfway through this letter of what's known as Paul's letter to the, the church in the port city of Ephesus. And if you love geography, that's right around in the Aegean Sea, around the Mediterranean. Now, in this letter so far, Paul has been waxing eloquently on the, the beauties, the vastness, and the scandal of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus. And now we get to this linchpin in the letter where he says, Therefore... And any time you see that word therefore in this 
letter. Ladies, you've been studying this in the women under the word. You always have to ask the question, what? What is the therefore? That's right. What's it there for? Paul is saying, in light of everything that I've been writing to you about, in light of this great gospel that is now at work inside of you, now this great gospel is going to work in and through you in all of your relationships within the church and outside the church. See, Paul knows that we cannot walk in the love of Christ if the love of Christ hasn't worked in us first. He also knows that we cannot say, I love knowing about the love of Christ and then fail to show it to other people because he knows that that is blatant hypocrisy. The Apostle Paul is going to show us that that Christ's love must motivate us to love others. That this gospel doctrine that we claim to delight in must also fuel and form our devotion and duty to each other. Or to put it another way, our gospel convictions must cultivate gospel culture. Pastor and scholar Ray Ortland, he writes this in his book, The Gospel. You'll see this up here. He says, you can have gospel doctrine, but if you don't have gospel culture, it's hypocrisy. You can have gospel culture, but if you don't have gospel doctrine, you'll have fragility. Because when you don't have gospel doctrine, it's just, I believe in my truth for me, and my truth is my truth. And everybody be washed to and fro on the stormy waters that is the false doctrines of this world. It's it's fragile. But, he says, if you have gospel doctrine plus gospel culture, you have power. You have power amidst a people who on their own are powerless. Right? Because we have the, the working of the Trinity The Father who sent his Son to purchase us, and now the Spirit who now seals us with this power. We cannot have one or the other, gospel doctrine or gospel culture, because to divorce those two from one another is to unhinge what's true of Jesus to then not be true of Jesus' followers. Unless you have both, we will not have the power we need for unity in the church. And the order, the order is crucial, right? The Apostle Paul doesn't say, fulfill these commands first, does he? No, no. He says, Christ fulfilled the law's commands first in your place, Christ loved you before you were even willing to love God. For if we were meant to fill the law's commands, if we were meant to love God first, y'all, let's just be honest, he'd still be waiting. Therefore, in light of this great love that knows no bounds, the Apostle Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus and to us, 
Let that gospel doctrine now fuel and form your devotion. That's our main point today. That gospel doctrine must fuel and form our devotion to each other. And he's going to show us this gospel culture by addressing two things today. And you have this in your notes. First, gospel culture and the charity of our conduct. Gospel culture and the charity of our conduct. And the second point is gospel culture in the unity of our God. And so if you guys are ready to dive in, follow along with me with this first point. Gospel, culture, and the charity of our conduct. Verses 1 through 3. Let's read them again. I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the Apostle Paul, he's not appealing to the church in Ephesus from a position of superiority. Now, in humility and gentleness, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner. It's from a posture of lowliness he's appealing to them. Remember, he just prayed What did he just pray for? That the glory would be revealed through the church. And what does it mean to glorify? We said it means to glorify something is to magnify something. We are to be like a telescope that makes something big begin to appear as large as it actually is. And how do we do this? Henry Nouwen writes this, people seek glory by moving upward which is not what the Apostle Paul is doing. God reveals his glory by moving downward. If we truly want to see the glory of God, we must move downward with Jesus. Do you see the Apostle Paul and all of his imperfections? Like Christ, he gently and humbly reminds the church in Ephesus now to walk out what Paul just talked out, a manner worthy of their calling. Now, Christianese has hijacked this word calling. I mean, how many of y'all think when you hear the word calling, you think it's reserved for the specialists and the elite in the church? A few folks, right? Like for the church planters, the foreign missionaries. But the Bible never talks about calling that way. Calling is what every Christian is called to. All Christians are called. And in this case, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he's called us to. And if you remember, that is a future hope. A future hope that no adversity can take away from us. And he does not say, I want you to walk in order to be called by God. He tells us to walk because we have been called. It's our calling that we walk in, not a calling that we work for. Amen? And this manner is with humility and gentleness, patience and forbearance, and the bond 
of peace. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of those one by one. And you might be thinking, Rob, this seems like a really long first point. Yeah, it's kind of like a Swiss army knife. It's one knife with multiple tools. This is one point with multiple points in it. So humility, gentleness, do you see that? In all the four Gospels, did you know that Jesus only describes his heart once? Do you know what he says about it? Let's let him speak. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, can you say these words with me? Gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. Dane Ortland, yes, it's the son of Ray Ortland that I quoted earlier. He explains Christ's heart like this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. Let that warm your soul this morning. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required, he says. I will give you rest. You see, gospel culture is Jesus culture. It's saying you do not have to unburden yourself. You do not have to collect yourself to be in community with me. This type of humility that Paul is calling us to, this type of gentleness, is like when what C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity when he says, man, when you meet a humble person, all you can really think about is how much they paid attention to you. How the focus was on you and not on them. What do you feel when you're around a humble and gentle person? Your burdens are not weighed down anymore. They're lifted. But you might say, Jesus flipped over tables, Rob. Didn't Jesus pronounce all these woes to folks? Yeah, he did. But who was the recipient of those woes and that anger? The self-righteous, pride-filled Pharisees who put heavy burdens on the marginalized, the outcast, women, children, and foreigners. He only pronounced woes and was righteously angry with the self-righteous, not those who came to him in need and humble dependence. This doctrine must lead to devotion. And I just wonder how do others experience you? Do they experience somebody who says, bring me your burdens, and I will shoulder them with you.
Bring me your confessions and I won't condemn you. But I'll be gentle with you as Jesus was gentle with me. Does your gentleness require relational transactions from others? Or does your gentleness feel more like a gift to others? Convictions about Jesus leads to a culture like Jesus. And he says, with patience, he goes on. Forbearance, verse 2. Maybe you're not aware of this. Did you know that the Bible gives us a sacred privilege in dealing with sins committed against us? This sacred privilege that you can forbear, meaning forgive somebody of their sin committed against you without them even knowing they committed a sin against you because you're committed not to bring it up to them. I've said a lot of foolish things from this pulpit before. And I've watched this church model forbearance to me. There's a lot of things you guys could have brought up to me, but haven't. You're modeling Jesus to me. I mean, just imagine if Jesus would bring up every single sinful thought or deed. Y'all, we'd be crushed. But I can hear the self-righteous person here saying, are you saying we're never supposed to bring up sins to one another? No. There are definitely instances when it is necessary. And when is it necessary? It's when a single instance turns into a long-term practice. Because Paul says we're called to be peacemakers. In verse 3, does he not say that? To eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace in love. It's not truth at all costs. It's truth with love. Jesus even taught this in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the, say it with me, yeah, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, typically when we think about peace, we think absence of war and absence of conflict. That's not what peace is. Peace is this Jewish concept of shalom. Shalom is this picture of a circle. It's wholeness and harmony in every direction and every relation. To make peace, hear me, is to make community. To make peace is to make community. Like we're made to maintain and cultivate the soil of the ground, we're eager to maintain the soil of the souls and hearts in our relationships so that our hearts do not become rock, stony, and hard towards one another or towards God. Most of the time when we think about peacemaking, it's really the work of peacekeeping, which is just a kind way of me saying peace faking. We refuse to cultivate or disrupt the soil of our souls. 
What does this look like? It looks like when a child is freaking out at home, dad, you put a show on. Peace faking. When a roommate or a classmate sins against you, you move out or you say, peace out, I'm done. It's peace faking. Or when you say, it's okay when you're sinned against, when no sin is really okay, it's peace faking. Or maybe you're on the other side of the pendulum. You've had these thoughts or statements run through your mind or slip across your lips. Can't believe you said that. I have a right to be angry. Why aren't you as serious about change as I am? This is self-righteousness. Because from a heart of self-righteousness that says, I'm incapable of committing the same sin as you. In that moment, we become the law and the courtroom simultaneously. In fact, all at once, we become the judge, the prosecutor, the court recorder, and the jury. And quite often, these are just open and shut cases. We call the jury, and in the courtroom of me, we declare guilty before ever curiously cross-examining the defendant. But you know what the family of God is meant to be? It's gentle, patient peacemakers, gospel, culture, defense attorneys, where we say, yes, come into the courtroom of grace, and you're forgiven. And this forgiveness comes because I've been forgiven. I'm going to forgive you like Christ has forgiven me. And sometimes, you know what this means? We don't even bring them into the courtroom. We forbear. We forbear. Because that forbearance has to come with a heart of patience. And you can't be patient unless you have this heart of humility, being willing to say, I've done worse than them and deserve worse than them. And then you remember how gently Jesus has welcomed you. It's a Swiss army knife of a first point. But that word of God cuts you and heals you. offers you grace when you know you haven't been gentle, when I know I haven't been patient, when I know when I was too quick with my judgments. This is the charity, the generosity of a church, of our conduct, when we know right gospel doctrine. Amen? gospel culture 
and the charity of our conduct, but it's also point number two, gospel culture and the unity of our God. Paul is saying, Ephesians, your eagerness to maintain this unity is not something that has to be created by you. For it originated somewhere else for all eternity. And he says where? Look at verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There are those words again. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's saying you have an eternal unity that cannot be broken. You have an eternal unity, an eternal bond that can never be stripped. And did you notice this beautiful Trinitarian pairings? I have it up here for you. He says, one church with one hope in what? One spirit. One faith and one baptism in one Lord. He's talking about Jesus. One family who is over all, through all, in all, that's in the one God and Father. It's a unity we did not have to create, but it's a unity that we now cultivate. This culture of grace, culture of welcome, culture of gentleness, peace, and humility can only be cultivated if you are rooted in the Trinitarian love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's because this culture is not superficial. It's supernatural. You can't cultivate it without the supernatural power of the Spirit. And you might be saying, Rob, I I get it. One Father, one Lord, one Spirit, yet one faith, maybe one baptism, because I know y'all disagree on baptism. But one body? One church? Come on. How many different denominations are there? One? One? I'll give it to you. From an earthly perspective, it seems like the body of Christ is consistently and constantly divided from our earthly perspective. However, from a heavenly perspective, one God, one Father over all, he sees one family in unity. Think think of it this way. If you're like me and my siblings... I mean, shoot, it just wasn't back then. It still happens today. You fight. Thank you, Joey. (laughs) Siblings fight. But do they cease being family? From the outside, it might look like they're not family. Might look like they're divided. But even when an earthly father steps into a situation of sibling rivalry or sibling arguments, what does a good but imperfect earthly father typically do? He's eager to maintain unity, bond of peace, by doing what? Reminding them, you are my kids. We are one family. Because you have one father. 
This is the essence of what Paul is talking about. He's telling this church in Ephesus that has this great temptation to be divided, not just over personal preferences, but also racial prejudices and also interpersonal self-righteousness. You are already one, even when you don't act like it. The invitation for them is to keep stepping into the supernatural grace that has already united them and continue to make them one in Christ. He's telling, I want you to maintain and cultivate the unity that's already been created for you in Christ Jesus when he's made two, now one man. You with me? And this was localized in Ephesus, meaning it must be localized here in Pittsburgh. It's easy, church, is it not? To not feel like you are one and united with the church here. And here's one of the main reasons why I think it's difficult to feel like you're one with the people who are sitting in front of you, behind you, and beside you. It's because you have information overload on this device right here of all that's going wrong with the church around the world. Is it good to be aware of wrongs, hurts, and the rise and fall of churches across America? Yeah, it's good. Just like Paul as he sat under house arrest in Rome, was concerned with the church in Ephesus. Or was concerned with the church in Galatia when the apostle Peter was walking out of step with the gospel. It's good to be concerned over those things. But you know what didn't lead Paul to do? Be impatient and divisive and harsh with the people who were in front of him. Didn't lead him to judgments Harsh judgments about the people who were right before him, proximate to him. Instead, you know what he asked the church in Ephesus to do for him as he's in house arrest? He says, pray for me also, Ephesians 6, 19 to 20, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. That means in his present predicament, in his proximate location, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Yes, he's concerned for those there. But he's proximately loving those who are here for him. And sadly, I'm seeing so many Christians, I fail at this too, get so distracted by good things that you forget about the ultimate thing. Is this resonating with anybody? You're losing perspective because you're letting the good things become the ultimate things in your life. In the 70s, Eastern Air Flight 701 was scheduled to go from JFK to Miami. Beautiful day, 
clear skies, perfect weather for flying. But then right as they were to land in Miami, uh, this light goes on, a warning light goes on to let them know that the landing gear is not working properly. And so this sparks a huge debate amongst the flight crew. And they're wondering, hey, it's, it's probably not the landing gear, it's probably just a broken bulb. It's probably just glitching out. So the crew sends people down below to see in the, the cabin, hey, is, is it actually working properly? Ours is the landing gear down. This got such a huge debate, so much zeal, that they put the plane on autopilot and they all go down below. There's nobody in the cockpit. But in their huge debates, in all their zeal, the sole focus on a bulb and the landing gear, which is important, Landing gear is important, right? The autopilot turned itself off. And 101 people crashed into the ground and were killed. All because a group of people who had one job, to fly a plane, got so distracted by a problem that they forgot to maintain the flight path. I'm fearful that many of us gets so distracted by problems within the church, so eager to watch what's going on elsewhere, so eager to even have peace with the world that we forget to maintain the path we are called to walk. What are you eager to maintain? Right here. Right now eager to maintain a killjoy of pointing the finger, eager to maintain and be the self-righteous prosecuting attorney? Or are we eager to maintain unity with humble, gentle hearts, eager to be patient with others because you know how patient God has been with you? eager to welcome others. So then they walk in this room, they don't find an aroma of a self-righteous killjoy show, but an aroma of grace, peace, welcome, and hospitality. See, our calling, church, is to reveal to the world what our future hope will be like by being it. Now, one with God and one with each other. It's what Jesus prayed for. So that what? They will know that the Father has sent the Son. Our world is on fire right now. This cultural experiment that we call our country is divided, falling apart. It's a world right now that constantly screams at you to pick a side. Are you on the right? Are you on the left? Are you with the conservatives? Are you with the liberals? It's a world that keeps asking you, are you with us or are you with them? And the reality is, 
the church of Jesus Christ only has very little to agree with with both sides, but plenty to disagree with on both sides. See, our calling is not to be discipled by the cable news outlets or discipled by your social media outlets that tells you if someone doesn't agree with you, look like you, act like you, or talk with you, you must be against them and therefore a jerk to them. You know what the greatest apologetic right now in our nation is right now? Is that when somebody doesn't treat you right, the greatest apologetic is for the Christian to say, I'm going to treat them with kindness. It's not my rightness. It's not my theology. It's not my correctness that will lead them to repentance. But what is it? Kindness that leads to repentance. See, what we have to offer the world right now with our unity is not this weird Christian subculture. It's not a culture that is against the world's culture. It's not even a capitulating to the culture around us. No, it's a counterculture that finds its roots and its bearings in the grace of God. You see, from eternity past, the fountain of God's grace, the source of God's grace is found nowhere else but in God. Nowhere else but in the essence of who God is. It is the community that exists in the plurality of the Trinity from all eternity. Did you know that you were created for unity out of unity? You were created for community out of community of the Trinity. But like our first parents, Adam and Eve, our pride-filled disposition says, I know how to walk better than the one who designed me to walk. And this divided us from God and from one another. You see, it's not just that sin came into the world at Genesis 3, but division came into the world at Genesis 3. Division between God and man and division between us and one another another. But God in Christ Jesus wasn't going to let our fear-filled and pride-filled divisions be the last word of what this humanity was to look like. No, Christ Jesus, Colossians 1 tells us, by whom, through whom, for whom, everything was created in me and in you. He says, no, I'm not going to let what you separated back at the fall be the final word over you. And so what does he do? Christ Jesus clothes himself in humility. He makes himself lower, like us, without becoming like us. He doesn't come with harsh words. He doesn't come with impatience. He doesn't come with condemnation. No, Jesus Christ comes and he says, I do not count equality with God as something to hold on to for my own advantage or for my own privilege. But I'm going to use my privilege, my advantage to advantage you, to privilege you so that I will not come with condemnation for you, but I'll take that condemnation for you. 
I will not come and forsake you, but I will be forsaken in your place so that you can have forgiveness. You see, on the cross of Christ, we see how humility led to unity, not of people who loved God, but were enemies of God. And it was on the cross of Christ where we don't just see the humility of Jesus. We see the humiliation of the God-man getting everything we deserved so that by faith in him, not by walking rightly, not by your works, but by grace through faith alone, you get the gift of God's patience and not his wrath. You get the gift of his gentleness. You get the gift of his forbearance that he doesn't bring every sin up to you for has been buried in the grave with Jesus. And we get peace. Peace in the bond of love. Because God is saying, I'm no longer at war with you. All that war was poured out on Jesus. So the separation that you brought, I now bring reconciliation. Not just reconciliation between man and God, but reconciliation between man and women and children by faith in Christ. This is our doctrine. Is it our devotion? These are our humble convictions. Is it our culture? Because by the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that same spirit now unites the body. And so now we get to be a community of grace that doesn't say, I'm against you, but I'm for you. Because when I was against God, Christ was for me even while I was his enemy. So I'm going to be for you. We cultivate a community of grace and love that doesn't capitulate or stand with the culture, but a community that challenges the culture, not with a spirit of judgmentalness or self-righteousness, but a spirit of gentleness, kindness, and grace. And we get to cultivate a community that is not a subculture that creates protections from the world but a counterculture that offers the peace of God to others, even if it means our persecution, even if it means our suffering. Amen? See, I want the people of Pittsburgh to meet this church and say, why aren't there more of you? And our simple response to them is, there can be. Come meet this Jesus that I know. Do you know him? And how do we do this? It's how Jesus prayed. Father, make them one so that the world might know that you sent me. Oh, may this gospel doctrine 
lead to our gospel devotion. May this gospel conviction lead to a gospel culture. Church, do you long for this? Do you want this? Let's walk in it. Walk into that calling. That is our future hope. That gives a vision for our hope here today. Amen? We have a symbol here that gives us a picture of our unity. The symbol of the humility of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, that he bled and died for our unity. It's a symbol that shows the extent of what he went through so he can make us one, even when we don't act like one. So if you're a Christian here today, this meal is for you. If you're not a Christian and you long for this type of relationship with God and this type of relationship with other image bearers around you, we want to invite you not to work for this grace, but to partake of this grace. Partake of Jesus, and we can prepare you for a later time to partake of this meal. But you blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ, oh, you family, we get to partake in this meal. But on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. Man, if you just slow down and think of those words, on the night he was betrayed, betrayed. He still wanted unity with his imperfect disciples, his failures of disciples. It's me. It's you. On the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and, and he broke it and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body given for you. Let us take and eat. In the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he told his disciples, this is the cup of the new covenant, new commitment, my commitment to you. And it's sealed with the shedding of my blood. Let's take and drink. For whenever you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you're announcing my death until I return. We're announcing his unifying death. It's by his blood we are one. 